Get in the action on the Action Addicts Podcast. No greater faction than the action movie scene. Get in the action on the Action Addicts Podcast. Your satisfaction, action on the silver screen. Hello ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Action Addicts Podcast, I'm your host Scott Wiley, and today people have decided that it's a good day to use pressure washers where I live, so I apologise if you can hear that in the background, pretty sure you can't, but on the off chance something comes through, that's what it is that you can hear, they've been at it for hours, show no signs of stopping. Today on the show, we are going to be discussing the, quite frankly, classic film, The Expendables. I'm a big fan of this film, and I'm a big fan of this franchise, and I was really excited to have Bede from the Super Network come on to talk about it with me. He and I have been talking about having him on for quite a while, and one thing after another, as you'll hear us discuss it a bit, kept kind of stopping us. Uh, firstly, it was his fault, then it was kind of mine, and then time just ticked on as it does. But after listening to this back when I was editing it, there is a couple of things that I feel like need to be said before this starts. First of all, I spend quite a bit of time discussing the preamble to The Expendables. Not even necessarily the pre-production, but the preamble. You know, everybody who was following this film's build-up, I guess, had that moment of going, really? There's that many actors in one film, and all of them are the guys that I've been following since I was a kid. And you're telling me that they're all going to be in one film. And there was an awful lot of people that also weren't going to be in this film, but were offered. And we do spend quite a bit of time discussing that. So do just bear that in mind. It is it is all relevant. And uh, the other thing that needs to be said, if you're only watching this from a pure like audio point of view, like you've just, you know, it's come up in your podcasting app of choice. Uh, that's cool. But you probably won't have seen uh, that I have deliberately used a poster for the director's cut because that is the version of this film that we will be discussing. If you haven't seen Sylvester Stallone's director's cut of The Expendables, I would highly recommend that you track it down. It is, in my opinion, the superior version, even though, as you will hear us discuss, there are some minor things that I do actually prefer in the theatrical edition. But overall, the director's cut is both myself and Bede's superior version of choice. And as a result of which, more by accident, I fear that uh, this episode was more about the director's cut rather than the Expendables as a whole. So do just kind of bear that in mind. We do talk quite a lot about the Expendables, you know, with stuff that's the same in both. We also end up talking a lot about what's different purely because, you know, we watched it and it's interesting to talk about the differences between two different editors' approaches and the tone changes and the music changes, the dialogue changes, etc, etc. So, either way, I think it's a pretty good episode. It is a long one, though, which at the minute seems to be pretty common. I'm actually kind of more surprised when it's a short one, but you guys seem to love the long ones, so I'm not as fussed about it as I used to be. Either way, I'm going to hand you over to myself and Bede. I hope you enjoy this discussion of the Sylvester Stallone film, The Expendables, 
See you for the outro. All right, ladies and gentlemen, we are live in the room and we are joined today by Bede, who you might be familiar with if you listen to uh, a lot of the shows that are on the Super Network. How are you doing today, Bede? I'm very good, thanks, Scott. Uh, I'm very excited to finally come on your show. I've been listening quite a lot of episodes <laughs> in the lead up because we have been talking about my uh, guest appearance on the show for a little while now. So I'm very glad that the day has finally come. And uh, I'm excited to kind of, you know, kind of talk about another subgenre that I love, which is action films. Because, I mean, on the other podcasts I do on the Super Network, you know, we talk about, you know, horror and other genres and that. And I also, you know, have my own solo podcast at the moment called um, Bead versus the Living Dead, which is, again, another horror-centric uh, podcast. So it's always fun to kind of, you know, kind of step outside the uh, my comfort zone and talk about other genres of films that I love. And yeah, I'm looking forward to uh, talking a little action on uh, tonight. Yeah, well, thank you for coming on, man. I mean, the day of fate has finally come. <laughs> and like you say, it just, I don't know, man, it, sometimes when I try and book people on, it's like it happens practically the next week, and other times it takes forever. In your case, I think I was literally about to, to lock in a date, and then my laptop died, so it was sort of like, oh, for God's sake. So I had so many people that uh, I, ha I, I had to keep at the back of my head that like once I'm back up and running, I need to try and make sure that they... They're some of the first people I have in before all the other people that are either asking to come back or, or newer people. It's like, no, no, no. I have people that were supposed to come on before you guys. So you guys have to wait. <laughs> <laughs> but even before there, because I remember you were like, oh, are you free uh, next week to uh, do a show? And I was like, uh, I can't because I'm covering the Melbourne International Film Festival for the next few weeks. Yes, and I think that's, I that's true. It's your fault. <laughs> Yeah, well, that, and then by the time I finished, that's when, of course, your laptop, like, broke down, so pretty much, yeah, I have the worst timing when it comes to, uh, arranging, uh, guest appearances on other people's podcasts. Hey, it doesn't matter, you, you're here now, and we're here to talk about the film The Expendables. Oh, yeah. And it came out in 2010, which is just, like, uh, how is this film 12 years old? Yeah, I know. It feels like only yesterday when I sat in the cinema for the first time seeing this film. Like, I remember that day vividly because I watched this as a double feature with um, Scott Pilgrim vs. The World, like back to back. And oh, wow. That's a, that's a double feature right there. <laughs> yeah. And I'll tell you this. Like, I've seen many double features or sometimes even triple features in my time because some days I like to do an all dayer at the cinema. But to me, doing Expendables and Scott Pilgrim back-to-back -back is still my favorite double feature I ever done because, you know, I absolutely love both movies. Uh, spoilers for <laughs> our discussion on The Expendables. And that so much so that literally the next day I went back and did another double feature of the two films again. So it was a good two days, like, seeing both these films back-to-back. -back. And, and that's the thing, because both these films, like, when they were released, like, they were released exactly the same weekend in the united states and also here in australia so and it's funny though because i always associate these two films together because you got one film that kind of represents kind of the old school action films of the past and then you have scott pilgrim which kind of 
to me kind of represents the action films of the future. So it to me, that's why I, I always say, if you're going to do an action double feature, definitely put these two together because they kind of represent different things, like where the action genre has been and where it's going, at least at that point in uh, in cinema. Yeah, but no, I, I agree. I mean, not to, to talk about Scott Pilgrim too much, but um, that's such an interesting double billing. I mean, I, I saw the Expendables in the cinema, but it was just on its own. I remember it was like the first time in a very long time that all of my like oldest friends that I'd like gone to school with. Okay, that was like four, five, six likes in a row there. Let's cut down on the likes, Scott. Um, we went to the cinema together and it was the first time that we'd all gone as a group for a very long time. And it was such an, a great experience because I think everybody no matter what age group you're in, can say, oh yeah, I grew up watching Sylvester Stallone films. Obviously, if you're on the older side, maybe not as much, but for a lot of generations, you could say Stallone's always kind of been there. And if you're a fan of Stallone, then there's a pretty good chance you know everybody else in this film. And I mean, from mine and my friend's point of view, I can remember like when I read that this was going to happen and they started to say what the cast was and i i remember saying this to my mate and he just sort of looked at me like what like, he he just didn't believe it he's like there's no way they'd get that many people in a film together he said that's crazy and uh sadly you know it 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 the the casters did shift and change a lot because there was a lot of people offered roles in this that turned it down and i'm sure they kicked themselves for that because i think everybody expected this film to fail and instead it kind of reignited a lot of people's interest in these older stars. Mm. Yeah, I agree. Like, I grew up on, you know, Stallone, Schwarzenegger, Willis, and Lundgren, and, you know, a, a lot of the others, like Jet Li as well, and also, you know, Jason Statham. So, you know, a lot of these guys, like, I grew up watching their films in the 90s and also in the 2000s. And, you know, as a young kind of, even when I was young, when, you know, Stallone, Willis and Schwarzenegger were like in their prime. I always kind of dreamed that, ah, uh, it wouldn't it be awesome if like all three of these guys somehow did a movie together? Like how, like kind of epic that would be. And I honestly thought it would probably never happen because you know there's always been that kind of rivalry between you know uh, Sly and Arnie, you know, because they had that sort of on and off rivalry over the yeah. years and. And, yeah, I just never thought, like, oh, yeah, it would never happen. Then, of course, you know, like, when Sly kind of had his big comeback in the mid-2000s with Rocky Balboa and then uh, Rambo, you know, which he both directed. So I thought, oh, it's great that, you know, Sly's making a massive comeback and he's doing these action films, even though, yeah, he's a bit of... A bit old in the tooth at this point because he was in his late 50s, early 60s, but, you know, he was still bringing it. And then I remember just like going on a film website one day and just all of a sudden there was like this big news story. It's like Sylvester Sloan going to direct a new action film called The Expendables that's got to star Jason Statham and Jet Li. I thought, okay, that, that's pretty awesome. Like, I mean, you know, Statham and Lee were kind of big stars, you know, big action stars of the 2000s or Jet Li even earlier because, you know, with the, you know, the films he did in the 80s and 90s. So I thought, oh, that's awesome. Like getting these three guys together to do like this mercenary film. That's awesome. But then again, like you say, like they kind of talked about other actors who were kind of interested or uh, they tried to reach out to, but never got. 
like I know that they reached out to Van Damme and he turned down the film and I thought, oh, that's a bit of a kicker right there. But then when they sort of announced that, you know, Bruce Willis is going to have a small part in this film, I thought, wait, what? And then they said, like, Arnie is going to make a cameo in this film, like, while he's still, you know, in his governorship. And I'm like, holy shit, my dream of seeing these guys in a movie together is finally coming true. Like, yes, granted, you know, Arnold and Bruce were only going to make cameos, but the fact that these guys were going to be in the same movie together, you you can't help but feel excited. And particularly for me, because I'm a huge Dolph Lundgren fan, and the fact that he was going to be in this film as well, and this is like his first theatrically released film in 15 years, that was also exciting to me as well. And then with all the other casting that they announced, like some I was, wasn't was very much aware of, you know, like Randy Couture, but others like, you know, Terry Crews and Steve Austin, you know, I used to watch a lot of wrestling when I was younger. And of mm-hmm. course, Mickey Rourke kind of hosts The Wrestler. Like, it was pretty exciting as for an action fan kind of seeing this film come together. And I, I it, it's easy to say I had very high expectations for this film, like when, uh, when it was first announced and, and when it was going to be released. Yeah, no, I mean, I was right there, uh, probably in the same reactions as you, in that Jason Statham and Jet Li were probably the two biggest action stars of that generation, without mm. a shadow of a doubt. I mean, being from the UK, I was familiar with Statham before he really exploded in Hollywood, because he'd made a lot of uh, British films of a slightly different genre. And I always remember the fact that, you know, I grew up watching Jet Li's Asian catalogue of films, but one of his, like, first, in inverted commas, it wasn't the first, but one of the, the first big ones that I remember really loving of Jet Li's that was in English was The One, which, of course, has Jason Statham as a supporting cast role with an interesting American accent. He just kind of went from strength to strength there, and then they did War together, which isn't Ooh. everyone's cup of tea, but I liked it, and then it was like, a couple years later, oh, they worked together again in The Expendables. I remember there was an interview with one of them, and I think it was Jason, and they said, you know, oh, this is like your third film with Jet Li, and, you know, was that by design? And Jason was sort of like, well, I really like working with Jet, but it's not like we we sat down with the casting agent and, and like, threatened him if he didn't put us in another film together. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I, I always keep forgetting, like, you know, until, you know, they did this film, uh, together they did yeah a couple other films together prior so they were kind of already like the you know the big like the two action stars who would always at least team up every few years for an action film and it has been a while since i've seen the one but i did remember enjoying that one when it came out and i also enjoyed war when that came out too like again like you say it's i can understand people not liking that film but i don't know what i don't know it just worked for me that film um maybe it's because the where it goes and its third act was pretty surprising for me at the time. So, um, but yeah, I mean, seeing these two, you know, again for a third time, but this time, you know, working with Stallone, uh, was a big thrill for me. And, you know, again, as the film was being developed and more and more stars were being added, it just made me even more excited for the film overall. No, I, I was the same as you with Dolph Lundgren. I loved Red Scorpion, Army of One. And for some reason at the time, everybody seemed to forget about Universal Soldier. That was the thing that always annoyed me when people would see him. They would be like, oh my god, 
they got the Russian from Rocky, and it's like, am I the only person in this room that's seen Universal Soldier? Because I know I'm not. I know you've all seen it, and I just made people rewatch it, and they were like, oh wow, that that was way better than I remember. I'd totally forgotten he was the other guy. And I'm like, ah. <laughs> yeah, well, I think for me, Dolph, like, I grew up on Dolph via both, um, well, Rocky Four, obviously, because that was always like a staple growing up in my household, that film. But also, I, I was obsessed with Masters of the Universe. That was like ah. one of my childhood films. And it's still one of my favorites. Like, it is a very silly film, but I still love it, even though I know, and I actually r- met, um, Dolph Lundgren a couple of years back at a convention and <laughs> and so that was exciting kind of meeting him in person and kind of trying not to freak out in this like media because I mean as much as I do love Sly, Arnie and Bruce I've always been partial to Dolph I don't know why maybe it's because he was like the first action star I became aware of when I was a kid um and kind of have an affinity, affinity for him but also I always think he's very underrated, not just as an action star, but also as an actor as well. Mm-hmm. Like I've seen him in other, like other films since those two, and he's always great in all of them, and especially when he gets to kind of have a character he really gets to play with. Like even though I'm not a fan of of uh, Johnny Mnemonic, but he has a very memorable turn in that film that you just can't help but you know love him whenever he's on screen. Yeah, no, I agree. I, I've seen him in a few of his um, direct-to-video stroke DVD stroke streaming efforts, and whilst uh, some of the films do not have the highest quality, there's quite a few gems there that he basically wills to completion with his sheer presence, and you know, mm. some of them are actually worth watching just to see what crazy shenanigans he pulls off, gets into. And I was really excited to see him, like you say, sharing a big screen. And uh, at the time, I was a big fan of Eric Roberts because, you know, best of the best. But also he just I think he'd just done um, The Dark Knight, where he played the the lead uh, gangster in that. And then, like you say, we had Randy Couture, who I was very familiar with being he's a you know, UFC champion. And then they announced Steve Austin. And it's like, well, Stone Cold doesn't need an introduction to my generation <laughs> I don't think there's anyone in my school that 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 didn't you know didn't watch wrestling even if it was only for a brief period of time. I mean, it was primed for the Attitude Era to be our era. The only member of the cast that I genuinely wasn't familiar with, outside of the fact that I'd seen him in the Sixth Day, was Terry Crews because obviously Ooh. the fact that he's a former NFL player was like something I read in his trivia. We obviously don't watch American football over here, so that meant nothing to me. And it took me years to realize that at the end of this film where he throws the uh, shell towards the helicopter is supposed to be a reference to the fact that, you know, he's throwing a football, essentially. Because I didn't know that's what he used to do, you know? (laughs) Well, that's the thing. Like, I got it. Well, I think with Terry Crews, I was more familiar with him as an actor. Like, I didn't know until later, like, he was a former professional football player. I first sort of, he got really kind of caught my radar with um, his memorable turn in the film White Chicks. That was like my first exposure to him. And pretty much as soon as he was on screen and pretty much stole every scene he was in, I just immediately just loved the guy. And uh, he's also very uh, memorable in this film as well. Oh, yeah, I I genuinely think he is uh, one of the best parts of the Expendables films in general. But I... uh... 
I unfortunately I just hadn't really come across him or if I had I hadn't made the connection that that was him you know mm. but uh it's so funny because like when you go back and look through it you know the the bad guys themselves they had Eric Roberts and Steve Austin and David Zayas who had just done something else that I'd seen him in and I can't remember what it was now because this kind of overtook um, whatever it was yeah yeah, I was kind of aware of David Zayas by uh, Dexter, because I used to watch that show a lot during its first four seasons. Oh, uh, yeah. I mean, I never watched it, watched it, but I definitely saw bits of it. Um, I'm I'm curious now whether or not I can figure out what it was, because I'm trying to remember if it was a TV show, if it was a film, because I know he's done a lot of stuff. So let's mm. see if anything... That jumps out at me. Well, I I know he. I think the same year he did the film, uh, the remake of Thirteen, which Statham and Mickey Rourke are also in as well. Uh, along with oh like, yeah Ray yeah Winston, he, he did Michael that's Shannon. true. Uh, he did an episode of Burn Notice, which I definitely would have uh, been familiar with him for doing that. But yeah, he did, he's done loads of stuff, so it could have been it could have been a number of things. So I'm not gonna sit here and try and work it out. But um, yeah, and then. <laughs> Uh, right next to Steve Austin, you've got Gary Daniels playing the Brit, which just makes me laugh. They didn't, he didn't even get a name. He's just, he's got a British accent. He's the Brit. And, you know, Gary Daniels was a fairly famous uh, British martial arts action star that had uh, almost had a career in Hollywood, but it never quite took off. But he's got quite a selection of direct video, direct DVD films that are actually far better than they have a right to be. Sadly, I think he kind of lost that momentum. And uh, unlike everybody else, I don't think being in The Expendables really helped bring it back. He he has done a couple good films, don't get me wrong, but I feel like people don't really know what to do with him in terms of like the, the industry. Um, you know, he did stuff with Jackie Chan back uh, when, you know, Jackie was still mostly making Asian films. And it's great that he ha there are films out there where he showed off what he could do and why he was famous in inverted commas. But it's a shame that. You know, when you watch this film, he does kind of get lost in the crowd. Hmm. Like, I think um, Gary Daniels, like, I think this was my first exposure to him, at least that I'm aware of. Like, I didn't, I just thought, like, you got all the big stars and everyone involved with this film, a lot of familiar faces that I was aware of. And then I saw Gary Daniels. I'm like, who, who's Gary Daniels? Who is this guy? And I, and you're right, though, in the sense, like, out of everyone, he definitely isn't given that much to do because he's just basically stock henchman character like he's the second henchman next to uh steve austin but it wasn't until like after i saw that film and kind of looked in more of his career and i realized oh he was he's been in a lot of action films like particularly a lot of stuff in the 90s that i hadn't seen before and i've seen him in other stuff like since then and the odd one here and there like uh including the jackie chan film um city hunter which he was in uh yes I, I mean he's definitely an action star and and also like the tekken movie as well <laughs> well yeah i mean he he uh because you you mentioned um masters of the universe and then tekken he also did uh the film version of the anime fist of the north star which uh it definitely wasn't a big hit but it's so funny when you think you know why haven't they made a film of x y and z and yeah they probably did it just uh didn't do that well <laughs> <laughs> well that's that what i've been hearing about a lot lately and i've heard like it, it does have a bit of a cult following that that film so i may have to check it out at some point because 
again, I've only ever seen Gary Daniels in like either supporting roles or tiny bit parts in other films. So I, he's definitely like a blind spot, I think, in terms of action stars. I need to kind of dive into a little bit more. Well, if I if I may make a suggestion then, because I know he's in one of the Bloodfist films with uh, Don the Dragon Wilson, but I get I can't remember how much he's in it. But if you want to see like films that he led or at least is a leading yep. man in, two from the 90s, yep, it does still count, it's just the 90s, would be Blood Moon and Cold Harvest. Those two are really good, along with Recoil. Um, and one of them, I'm just double-checking which one it is, it's Cold Harvest, I thought it was, is directed by Isaac Florentine, who I'm assuming you don't need me to tell you who that is. Oh, I'm very much aware of uh, Isaac Florentine's work yeah, as a filmmaker. That's, that's what I thought. Um, so yeah, he did, uh, he worked with Gary Daniels before he, uh, you know, found Scott Adkins to go and do his fancy stuff with. Doesn't surprise me at all. <laughs> and then uh, much, much more recently... I think it was uh, 2017. He is in the film. Uh, I uh, is it I am Vengeance or is it just Vengeance? Let me just double check. Okay, this is just saying it's called Vengeance, though I could have sworn it's called. Oh yeah, yeah. Okay, so it's a release thing. It's either called Vengeance or I am Vengeance, depending on where you are. Stu Bennett is the main character, but Gary Daniels plays the main villain. That's another one I would recommend watching. Not necessarily for the action from Daniels, but just in general. It's like, you know, all these years later, and he kind of reminds everyone, I can still do this, guys. You just got to give me the roles. <laughs> <laughs> like, I'm looking over sort of uh, Gary Daniels' filmography, and like, I've, there's the odd film here and there. It's like, oh, yeah, I have seen that. I don't remember him in it, but I know I've seen it. Um, <laughs> like, uh, Hunt to Kill with Steve Austin and Eric Roberts. I do remember uh, seeing that film. Um, I think I've seen Game of Death. That's the, uh, yeah, the Wesley Snipes film with Zoe Bell. I yeah. think I've seen that one. I think. I'm not sure. <laughs> but uh, the ones I, that you recommend, I definitely need to check out for sure. Yes. Um, I'm lucky enough to say I have Blood Moon and Cold Harvest on DVD because unfortunately, one of the issues when you're a director video star of the 90s is a lot of your stuff is uh, still just sat out there on vhs not really doing anything so it is it is a bit of a pain to try and track down people filmography who are sort of like a gary daniels or even the bigger folks like don wilson and cynthia rothrock they've still got so much of their uh films that are just stuck you know because they don't get high definition re-releases they don't get a lot of big fanfare and really, it's places like Vinegar Syndrome is probably the best example at the moment, although maybe places like Eureka Entertainment and 88 Films might start dipping their toes into them as well. But they're really the only ones that are putting these classic films out. Uh, and by classic, I of course mean cult classic. If you can find them, go for it. You know, Especially if you can find them on DVD, because they'll probably be cheap. <laughs> Well, I do have uh, the Cynthia Rothrock film uh, Sworn to Vengeance coming in the mail from Vidigas Syndrome as we speak. Like, I read the synopsis and who is in that movie, and I had to get it. <laughs> yeah, see, that was one of the ones that um, I was thinking of, because they seem to really be be releasing a lot of Cynthia Rothrock stuff. I got their Tiger Claws set, of which she's in one of them, maybe two of them, but there's Lauren Avedon's, I think, in one of them. 
so it's like they, they, they put this stuff out. My problem with Vinegar Syndrome is unfortunately sometimes they region lock the discs, which doesn't help much. Mm. But that synth that Cynthia one is region free, which is fantastic. But anyway, mm. as we as you were hinting at, there were lots of people that were offered roles in this, and I always find it so interesting because you already mentioned one, which is Jean Claude Van Damme, and obviously with the hindsight of history, Van Damme would change his mind once he saw how successful The Expendables was and uh, decided to join the cast of Expendables 2, which will be talked about on another day. But uh, I love the fact that um, he was really like kind of, uh, and I, I know I might get some flack for saying this, but he was kind of an asshole about The Expendables, in my opinion, because not only did he say no, he sort of said no, but with like a laugh. And I remember there was a, a panel that I watched, like, at the time. It's probably still on YouTube somewhere, but God knows how you'd find it, where he was uh, promoting one of his other films that obviously didn't do that well. They asked him, you know, oh, did you did you get offered a role in The Expendables? And he sort of was like, oh, yeah, I did. Like, Stallone called me and he said, oh, come and do this film. We're getting all, we're getting all these actors together. It'll be great. And you're going to have a fight scene with Jet Li. And I was like, yeah, but Sly, what's my character? And uh, he, he really sort of took the piss out of it. Like, you know, oh, you know, there's there's no character for me to get involved in. And I know I, I know I'm going to sound re really mean when I say this, but who gives a shit what your character is? It's an action film. Just yeah, say especially yes. one that's an uns yeah, exactly. Like, even, especially being that it's an ensemble piece as well. Um. And yeah, I, I always remember that that news or that you know Van Dam was offered you know Dolph Lundgren's part first, and it doesn't surprise me like he instantly regretted it given how successful that first film was because I remember it was like number one at the box office at least in the US for like two or three weeks. Yeah, I think and it you know like made over a hundred million dollars in the US and also made even more worldwide. So he kind of. Yeah, he definitely was kicking himself in the foot. But I think in hindsight, though, I think it's good that at least he did turn it down because we got a great memorable villain role from him in the sequel. Yeah, and I think, to be honest, because, you know, they, they've they now retroactively said that Van Damme was never offered uh, the part of Gunnar Jensen. And it's like, well, that might that that's true, because my understanding is is that Sylvester basically wrote a character for all of his friends, even ones that have never mm -hmm. been in it. Um, but you could basically just insert them into whatever part the story needed. So yeah, he might not have been called Gunnar Jensen, but he still would have been the guy with the drug addiction problem that fights Jet Li. And it yeah. feels it feels like if that had happened, would he have just been a more out and out villain, or would he still have had a redemption arc? We don't know. It, it you know I'm not even convinced that Dolph Lundgren was originally going to get a redemption arc at the end. And there's a cynical part of me that says test screening audiences found him to be very, very popular. And they were like, quick, we didn't kill him. We didn't kill him. <laughs> well, I'm glad they, they didn't kill uh, Dolph Lundgren off because, hey, you know, I'm a big Dolph Lundgren fan. So the fact that he got to be in the other films of the franchise yes, is, same. you know, still awesome to me. And, you know, he's also, his character is just a memorable character in all the films. Like he gives it his all. Uh, in as Gunner, and particularly in this first film, because and also I feel like with Dolph compared to Van Dam, as much as I do love Van Dam, Van Dam to me is always like at least I've always got the feeling like yeah, he definitely has a bit of an ego to him, and I feel like 
Lundgren, he would have just jumped at the chance with it. Because I don't really get that sense of ego with uh, Dolph. Like, he's, you know, he would have been happy, like, being in this film as part of an ensemble, while somebody like, you know, Van Damme would have rather either had a much, like, a lead role or maybe a much more bigger, substantial part. Like, I don't think he would have want to be, like, second fiddle to, like, Stallone or Statham, at least for me, anyway. Yeah, no, I, I, I agree with you. It's funny you mentioned the ensemble cast, because... The other person that I distinctly remember being disappointed said no, and I, I hated with a burning passion his reason. They offered a role for Kurt Russell, and mm. I, I, I am reliable. Well, I, I'm reliably informed. It says it uh, in the in the information, but I remember at the time, it was like Kurt Russell's agent said that Mr. Russell is not interested in ensemble acting at this time in his career, and it's like what fucking career. <laughs> I'm sorry, if you want to be a bitch about it, I'll be one right back. <laughs> yeah, well, because I remember Kurt Russell, like, he did Grindhouse, which he is, you know, absolutely fantastic in. And then he kind of took a couple of years off from there, because he wasn't in anything for quite a while after that film. Like, I don't know what his, you know, reasonings was. Like, I'm looking at his IMDb page at the moment. Like, he did um, Grindhouse, and then he wouldn't star another film again for four years. Yeah. And like, and I guess that that's, well, I don't know if it was something like, yeah, maybe he did turn it down, but, uh, and he just told his agent to make, make it sound like the agent was saying it, or maybe he was just kind of wanted a break for a while. And the, his agent was like, you know, maybe he's taking a break. He's doesn't want to do any acting for a while, but it's interesting him, these agents saying he's not interested in doing ensemble acting because a lot of the, when he did eventually, come back a lot of the films he would make after he would come back with were ensemble pieces like and if and it's kind of funny though because i know he was gonna play the church character originally that was the role they were offering him and he kind of ended up playing a church-like character in the fast and furious films with mr nobody yep i remember uh, when i watched the fast and furious films and he turned up and i the literally my first thought was ah you don't mind ensemble acting now. <laughs> you know, it's just, I don't understand. <laughs> I, d I don't understand some people, uh, especially when it comes to this sort of stuff. Like you say, it might have just been poor wording on the part of the agent. It might have just been an ego thing. Mm. I don't know. And then, of course, there are, there's two other big names and in inverted commas, uh, that I know were offered roles on multiple times, actually. Uh, the first and funniest is Steven Seagal, who I know that, you know, you're a big fan of and, Love to you know, <laughs> say things. Oh yeah, I, I I love to talk about Steven Seagal, especially if you listen to episodes of my one of my shows I do, uh, the Two B Tuesdays podcast, where I take the absolute piss out of him all the time. I kind of always in two minds about it. I think if this was like Seagal in his prime, I would have been like, oh fuck yeah, he needs to be in this film. But I think at this point in his career, particularly having seen a lot of the <laughs> direct the video crap he was starring in at the time where he basically either had had another actor do voiceovers for him or having his stunt double literally walking across the street pretending to be him I, i'm kind of glad he, he never ended up being in this franchise even though a small part of me kind of wishes he made like a little cameo but then i just have to remember i need to think 
big better than that because of how awful of a person he is in real life. So yeah, uh, um, yeah, I, it's kind of in two minds because the uh, yeah, no, because at the time when this came out, I will stress I don't think this anymore. But I was kind of I I had uh, started to look into a lot, number of the stars and like you say, what they're like in real life, and uh, no one's perfect. But at the time, I had really gone off both Van Damme and Seagal. And I and it was kind of like, I see a lot of similar personality traits in both of them. And, uh, uh, you know, everybody knows that they don't get along. And, you know, they, they got into a physical altercation at Sylvester Stallone's house. And no one's story is really the same of what exactly happened. But every every story I hear from anyone does not paint Seagal in the best light, whether it's stuntmen, crew on working on films, or just people that pass him in the street. Uh, I distinctly remember there is a reality show. You've probably not heard of it because it stars a British comedian uh, called Jack Whitehall, and he basically travels the world with his dad. And they actually run into Steven Seagal in Eastern Europe in a hotel. And it's like, wow, he's clearly there, you know, trying to sort out his next shite film. He was like, "Oh my god, it's Steven Seagal! I'm a big fan." And he and he he catches him as he tries to leave the hotel, and uh, for his efforts, he's rewarded with Seagal literally throwing him into a pool, and then Seagal fucks off to his four by four and drives off. Now, <laughs> I rem- I remember when I watched that, and my partner was like, "Do you think that was staged?" And I'm like, "There's a part of me that knows how things are filmed that says yes." But there's another part of me that knows what Steven Seagal is like that says, no. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it wouldn't surprise me at all. Like, I still remember, like, I've only heard all the stories about Seagal for years, particularly, you know, like the most memorable one being that I think on Saturday Night Live when he made, you know, when he hosted that episode for the first and only time. I think a lot of the people who were involved that in that show to this very day do say that he's like the worst host that show has ever had. Like he was like like every cast member hated working with him because he was had a massive ego. He thought everything that what he thought was funny wasn't funny and yeah, and there was just a miserable time <laughs> for everyone working for him. Yeah. Um so I I'm actually kind of glad he uh he wasn't in these films in the end though. I, a part of me thinks it would have been funny if they'd cast his stunt double and got someone to dub over with that crap voice that they, they always do and just ha- had a random guy sat there in a leather coat going, yeah, man, I'll get you whatever you need. I'm right here for you, brother. I think everyone would have known who they were talking about and I'd have died laughing. Um, but the other big name that they <laughs> they were, that uh, Stallone, I think practically like begged at one point because he was such a pain in the ass to commit is Jackie Chan. Oh, yeah. Like, he was trying to get Jackie Chan to be in this in all these movies right up until the third one, and he almost got him for the third one, but, you know, Jackie Chan was like, oh, no, I'd rather do a lead role rather than uh, a supporting character. I I remember they almost got him for the second one as well. God knows what role Mm. he would have played, but, like, every, every single time the conversation apparently went the same, which is that Jackie would agree to do it, Right up until the moment Jackie realized that it also starred other people. And it, and it was almost mm. like, same as Kurt Russell, it's like he didn't want to be part of an ensemble, which I can kind of get, but it is a bit weird considering how many films Jackie has in his career where he is part of an ensemble and it didn't seem to bother him. But I think 
He mm. wanted to just do a film with Sylvester Stallone. Like he wanted to do, I don't know, pull a random modern film out of my hat, something like Skip Trace, but have Stallone instead of Johnny Knoxville. And I feel like I kind of get that. And, and, you know, it was talked about that they were going to do a film together for years that never seemed to happen. But at the same time, it's like, come on, man, Jet Li's right there. You like Jet, you've worked with him, you've got all these other people. Just show up for what would essentially be an easy paycheck, you know? you ha- At that point, his English-speaking film roles were very much declining. And uh, I think this would have actually helped sort of keep him in people's minds going forward for a more... Um, Hollywood produced films, shall we say? Hmm. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I would have loved to have still seen Jackie Chan in this film. I mean, any any of these films in this franchise. And I think he would have been great in the third film, especially with that character he was originally meant to play. Because I have the script to the third film, and like it that's the script that actually has Jackie's character, like the character they wrote specifically for him before, you know, they changed it to uh to Antonio Banderas's character. But then in hindsight, because I actually love Antonio Banderas in the third film, like he just steals that entire film for me. I can see some people not gelling with his performance, but for some reason it just works for me. So in a way, kind of like a lot of the performances, like the performers who ended up being in these films, I'm kind of glad that, you know, yeah, so-and-so turned it down so this other actor could take over the role. But, you know... And the, but there have been other cases in this franchise, like somebody who didn't end up being in said film would end up being in the film later on, like in the franchise later on. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the role that we both agreed that, you know, it kind of steals the spotlight is Terry Crews' Hail Caesar, but Hail Caesar was originally written for Wesley Snipes, and it was only because he mm. then unfortunately went to jail that that didn't happen. And then Terry Crews wasn't even the second choice. Apparently, Stallone really wanted 50 Cent, which uh, actually kind of is funny, given who's going to be in Expendables 4 now. So clearly, that's something that Stallone has had in the back of his mind for a long time. But I'm glad that Terry Crews got the role, because I genuinely do enjoy him. I think that for this episode, me and you both watched the director's cut rather than the original Mm -hmm. cut. and And I will say that the director's cut gives a lot more screen time to two terry and randy and they both have a lot more to do in expendables 2 but there was clearly a lot more shot for expendables 1 than was actually used and i feel that's true for a lot of the characters in my opinion if you've if you've never seen the director's car i would advise that you go in and watch it because whilst there are a couple of things that i prefer in the original they're very minor the vast majority of everything else is improved dramatically with the director's cut um fight scenes are better the editing is better and the continuity in terms of like how characters get where they're going where they're going and why they're going actually makes a lot more sense in the director's cut in my opinion oh for sure for sure like even though i do enjoy very much do love the theatrical cut i do agree that the director's cut is the far superior version of this film um because like you say, like, and you pretty much put it up perfectly, is like, it's better paced. Like, there's a lot more character development with the characters. Not just with the minor characters like, you know, Cruz and Coulter, but even just more character development with Sly and Statham. And, you know, the action scenes, like, because I know for a fact that Stallone wasn't entirely happy with how the action was done 
in the theatrical cut because you know this is around that time when a lot of action films were going for that fast-paced editing and shaky cam and all that you know like the Bourne films did uh and that I guess is for me like why as much as I do love this film why it's kind of my somewhat least favorite of the three so far is because of how the action sequences are staged at least in the theatrical cut but even though yeah in the director's cut uh that stuff is still there but you can obviously tell that sly and his editors went back to these scenes and tried to use a tried to make it less choppy and kind of extend a lot of the shots so you can at least you know a see what's going on b know the geography of where everything is and see like what the characters are doing in the situation that's happening on screen yeah and it's like for me it also sets the film up on a totally different tone for the opening because in this version of the film you don't get the credits on the boat and you don't get that action music you don't get them coming in and just basically wiping everyone out you get a much slower more tense opening with completely different music Mm. which is something that is is most of this film has completely different music to the theatrical cut not always for the better as i will get to at the very end but um the fact that they from the word go show you that the team is a lot more sort of broken and disjointed and they're a lot more grumpy in general than they are in the original they have much more dialogue several scenes that were in like the original trailer now are back in the film which i liked and you get a much better feel for their relationships and Dolph gets more time to sort of show he's falling apart. And I like the way that they kind of respond to that in this version. And then that cuts straight into the scene between Lee Christmas, Jathan Statham's character and uh, Lace, which was played by Charisma Carpenter, someone we didn't really mention because she's not like an action star, but obviously I think most people know her for a time on Buffy the Vampire Slayer and Angel. And, in the original, it very much feels like Statham is the one that gets all of the development because he has this like side story with her. And that still is the mm. case here, but they actually give her a lot more dialogue in this version. So it feels more real and natural. And like you get to see the repercussions of being a mercenary that spends half of his time away. And it's like, I bought into it a lot more when you can actually have some time to see their argument play out in full rather than just the cut down and now we're moving on version, you know? Hmm. And it's I agree, same... and especially because... Lo- yeah, sorry, go ahead. <laughs> no, sorry. <laughs> I, I, it, it was just to, to say, like, that this... the, the it, We then get the the scene in tools which i don't I, I won't go into because you want to say something but the tone of the film i feel like it cuts down on some of the comical parts that they added in and keep in a lot of the serious stuff the way they edit that sequence to like take out some of the funny bits with the knife throwing and some of the one-liners that are in the theatrical cut that i did miss because i like those one-liners but when you watch it as a complete package it's like this feels more in line with the story they're trying to tell of all of these guys are just kind of broken emotionally going through the motions and it's not until they suddenly have that redemption arc at the end of doing the right thing because it is the right thing that wakes them back up. Before that point, they're all kind of like walking zombies and they're just sort of pretending that they're alive, which it comes across much better in this version. 
Yeah, I actually agree with that. And also what I think is interesting about this entire franchise, with at least the first three films so far, because I don't know how this is going to be handled in the fourth film, is all three films kind of deal with morality in some way. Like the, because, you know, these are characters who, who put their lives on the line, go on these missions to, you know, stop like evildoers and whatnot. And as we see in the new opening, which I do love that new opening, by the way, even though I do miss the kind of the back and forth between uh, Sly and Statham, like after, you know, uh, Statham gives uh, uh, Dolph, I mean, the knife back to Lunger, because I do love that little exchange. And I kind of wish that still was still in this cut of the film but i love that with that song and all that it does set up the tone of not only this film but this franchise because you know these are like you say these are broken guys who you know like any day they could die and that's sort of like something that they all have they deal with in their own way particularly with the character of barney ross who out in all three of these films kind of deals with his like getting older and dealing with death on a constant basis like to a point like in this first film like and this to me i think is interesting about this franchise because there's like a free film arc for his character is kind of at the start of this film we see him as being this like emotionally black person who like based on his history has lost a lot of friends because we see like all the dog tags of all previous members of the team who have died throughout the years so he's dealing with like so much death in his life to the point that you know he kind of cuts himself emotionally off to a lot of people even though yeah he's friends with the team he has particularly you know with the character of lee christmas who he definitely has the most who has he has the biggest bond with but at the same time though he kind of shuts himself off emotionally because he doesn't want to i guess deal with losing like how hard it has been, you know, like losing so many of his friends in the past. And kind of, if he kind of shuts himself off emotionally, he won't feel that pain and agony of losing more in the future. But as, you know, the series would progress, he starts to kind of come out of that shell and starts to realize that, you know, these people are important to him. These are his friends and he does love these guys. And, this doesn't shut off his emotions anymore so we kind of get to see that in this first film because as Stephen always keeps saying at least in this cut of the film like he keeps saying to like lee always keeps saying the body oh you have a black heart yeah like because lee is kind of talking to him and opening up talking about the problems that he has like with his relationship problems because lee is definitely the far more emotional character because you know he's definitely the kind of male character that we see more today who's somebody who doesn't want to kind of lock up his emotions he wants to talk about this stuff and get his like arcs for advice about these things like with his relationship with Lacey and Barney on the other hand is just keeps like just either just kind of brushing it off and just keeps saying to him like uh she just wasn't right for you and stuff like that because he's avoiding that connection with Lee you you pretty much hit the nail on the head of what I was going to say anyway, which is that because they alter the opening, because they change some of the dialogues, the way that they interact, like especially in, in when they first meet Tool and then Christmas comes in, they don't really engage with 
while he's clearly upset, like they do in the theatrical cut. And Stallone's character doesn't really not it's not that he doesn't care, he just doesn't want to get involved. And then like you said, Lee Christmas, he's always uh saying, you know, you're a bleak bastard and you've got a black heart. And he does say that in the theatrical cut, but it, it doesn't really make any sense. It doesn't it never worked for me. It felt like he was saying it so that the audience knew so that later on when he doesn't do the like morally gray thing that it's like oh he's not got a black heart but you don't really get to see it and it and it felt like that thing where it's like oh yeah because of our other adventures that the audience hasn't seen i know you have a black heart but in this version you actually get to see that he can be a bit of a a dick to be blunt and although he you know he's not doing it deliberately he just doesn't want to get emotionally attached and i really love the fact that Statham gets to do a lot more talking, like uh, complaining about his relationships, not understanding what Lace is talking about, and he can't let it go. And there's that scene when they're in the island, and in both versions, there's a point where Stallone turns and says, you know, you're really pushing the boundaries of our relationship. And when he says that in the theatrical cut, it comes across as like a joke, because really... Statham hasn't really complained. But in this version, it's like after five, ten minutes of dialogue, and it's like, oh, right. This actually kind of, you know, this makes more sense now, and it kind of explains the rest of that whole sequence on the island, because now they're actually pissed off at each other. Like, Statham is genuinely irritable with Barney, and that's why he leaves the truck. Not because he wants to see things from different points of view or whatever random dialogue line they left in that makes a lot more sense with all the other stuff around it, you know? Oh, yeah, definitely, definitely. And it's, yeah, and I think their relationship together, like, is the core of this entire franchise because it is, like I kind of said to you even before we recorded, and even using the expendable Scott Pilgrim analogy, like both Barney and Lee kind of represent, you know, different facets of what men are like, you know? Barney's kind of that more, you know, that old school kind of guy who doesn't talk about his feelings, rather just like, just get the job done and go home and, you know, so, and cut off everything so he has no emotional ties for it to anything. And while Lee, on the other hand, is somebody who does want to talk about his feelings and, you know, isn't shy of doing that to the point where, you know, Barney does find it annoying that he just keeps talking about, like, all the stuff that's happened in his life. And yeah. I think it's interesting kind of seeing these two characters and their evolution as friends over the course of this franchise. So it'll be interesting once, you know, the fourth film comes around, which we know for a fact that uh, Sly has said that's going to be his last film. And we know that he's only going to have like a, a supporting role in that one. So we don't know what's going to happen to his character. Um, so it'll be interesting to see where this franchise goes without that core friendship at the center of it anymore. Like, so, because I feel like to me, that's the heart of this entire series is their friendship together and how it sort of grows as this, as the series goes on. Yeah, no, I agree. I think that, uh, if Stallone and Statham didn't have the chemistry that they do, then I don't think the film would work. Um, I do have to say though, that, uh, whilst I really do enjoy the relationship between Christmas and Barney, I actually really like the scene where, it's just Stallone and Jet Li 
and they go for a drive. And mm. I know mo- most of that is action, but I do really like the fact that you do, you do almost get an equal moment where they show that Barney and Ying Yang, you know, they can go off and do stuff together just like him and Christmas do. And I think it's a shame that because really this is the only film that has Jet Li in, yes, he is in the other two in very minor roles, but in this one, he was sort of like the third main member of the Expendables, and they tried to give them both equal things to do. And it's uh, it's a real shame that they couldn't sort of keep him for the next two, because although they're both good, you know, they're both got good stuff going on in their own right, I do feel like Jet Li really brings something to the film that is lost once he leaves. Hmm. I can agree with that, because, like, like I rewatching the scene again to like in prep for this show, like I really enjoyed that scene a lot because again, it's you know there's a different type of relationship there between Barney and Yang that is different from you know his relationship. I mean Barney's relationship with Statham, and I would love to have seen more of that in the franchise. But I know, at least based on what I've read and everything, that you know Jet Li couldn't really be in the next two films as much either due to uh like uh scheduling conflicts because he was working on an either on another film at the time or his health problems that he was suffering as well hence why he had to take smaller roles uh in both those films and i feel like if maybe if those things kind of happened didn't happen maybe we would have definitely have seen more of that with jet in the other installments but i love the fact that we at least get a bit of that in this film because it is a different kind of relationship between uh yin and um barney like like for example barney just wants to kind of go off do this mission by himself and pretty much tells the guys that i gotta do this on my own don't feel guilty i'm not guilty you guys for not coming this is something i need to do but yin on the other hand just goes in gets in the car anyway and it kind of tells you that there's definitely something there with their friendship. Like, Yin has a lot of respect for Barney, and he would do anything for him. Like, it's a different type of, of like, Lee's definitely much more emotional with Barney, the way in their conversations, how they talk. But Yin is someone who definitely is, like Barney, likes to keep a lot of his emotions more inside, more than anything else. Because I always find the character interesting because how he's portrayed in this film is very he's he seems like of the team he's definitely the most mysterious one of the team that's like when the gang had that sort of first meeting about doing the mission in Valena when he says oh I need to make money for my son the gang are like wait when Ying have a child like does he have a family we didn't know about this but it seems to me like Barney like Ying is that kind of character like Barney but at the same time though he has a lot of loyalty to his teammates, even if he doesn't like the fact that they all make fun of him for his small stature among the team. Yeah, no, I agree. I mean, I love the fact that uh, what was kind of, well, is, no matter which version you watch, it is a comedic line where, you know, I need more money for my family. And he says it multiple times throughout the film. And then you have that, that brilliant, exchange where it comes back in the car where he says about money and Stallone's right yeah you 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 know for your family and then it holds on Jet Li's face and then he's like I don't have a family 
And Stallone doesn't even look at him, but he's just like, I know. And it's just, like you say, they're, they're two people that don't really talk about their emotions. And in that one moment in a car on their own, it's like they might have actually just sort of opened up about what was on their minds. And then they get attacked by guys with machine guns and it's like nope now we're back to being killers you know this is this it's just you you just attacked us when we were both kind of emotionally vulnerable you're going to die very quickly <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah definitely and another thing i do love about this director's cut is like i think like i think for most part some of the humor in the theatrical cut for most part worked well but there were some jokes that kind of fell flat or at least how they were sort of edited or like how they were sort of executed in the film but one of the things i do love about the director's cut is that the humor actually is a like the jokes that didn't work the first time in the theatrical cut tend to work a lot better here because the scenes actually flow in whichever the you know the humor pops up in particularly that scene with the medium because i always remember watching that scene for the first time and feeling like, yes, yeah, so this scene with the team is just like, really kind of feels a bit choppy. And also a lot of the humor that they're doing just doesn't land. But here in the director's cut, it actually, that whole scene flows a lot better. Like it's just better edited and the humor actually hits much better as well. And it's, that's the great thing about this director's cut. It like, it is still going back, re-editing scenes to kind of just make them flow a lot better instead of making it feel very choppy or because I do. And I know some bits were taken out because I know for a fact in the theatrical cut, there was the scene with the phone when they were on the ship as they're fighting the bad guys. And then uh, Lee's phone goes off. Like he's getting a text message. Like, I guess in another scene that bit might work, but it does kind of ruin the tension of that scene because uh, it just stops it the scene in its tracks for a few seconds but i'm glad something like that is taken out of this director's cut because again that whole opening scene just plays a lot better but you know again a lot of the humor in this film again flows a lot better because you know of Sloan just re-editing and changing a few things around and just letting some scenes actually breathe as well yeah the fact that the dead space where characters can just react or think and the audience gets a chance to actually process what they've seen was the biggest difference. I'd say for 90% of the director's cut, that is one of the biggest things they change way too often in, in the original Expendables. And I think that is because of exactly what you said earlier. They were trying to just go for the style of the time. And I think when Ooh. he re-edited it, he realized that you don't need to. Whether or not you like quick cuts is kind of irrelevant. Like, I've said this before, there isn't actually anything wrong with quick cuts or even the dreaded shaky cam when it's done correctly. But most people, either because they don't have the time or because the studios don't really understand what makes it work, they don't do it correctly. They just go, make it quick. And it's like, yeah, but I can't actually see what's going on. And it's a real shame because I think there are actually some really inventive uses of the camera and there's some really clever uses of how they go about defeating their opponents because it's not even necessarily the choreography is like amazing or top tier but stallone comes up with some really inventive ways to show things that we've seen a hundred times before differently like i know that one of the shots that um i think always sticks out is that where the camera basically does a suplex 
and turns upside down and he shoots those guys because he goes upside down and shoots two guys. And I remember that was literally like the camera guy was like, hey, why don't I just do this? And Stallone was like, yeah, that's a great idea. And I like that sort of thing. But when it's mixed in with like quick cuts that are very difficult to follow and then the camera suddenly turns upside down, it's like it gets lost in the shuffle. It doesn't stand out. And the fact that in this, like you say, you get to hold on stuff for just that little bit longer and then you can kind of appreciate when something does suddenly go fast and it it put, picks up the pace. It actually feels like, oh, wow, stuff is happening now. Whereas when the whole film is edited like that, even when they're just talking, it's like, I don't, you know, there's nothing to really make you go, oh, yeah, now it's starting, you know? Mm. Oh, definitely. Like you say, it's it was basically just the style at the time. You know, with a lot of action films and, you know, this film kind of did that as well. But I think it's just great that, you know, Stallone just, you know, kind of realized, kept the things that worked from the theatrical cut, but just went back and kind of rearranged things as well. Because I always know that Stallone, like, and I think this is something that a lot of people don't give him credit for, especially in his action work, is that he definitely is someone who does want to dive into characters. But sometimes, you know, you know, he at the same time, he'll realize, you know, the audience doesn't want to see a scene with 10 minutes of a 10 minute scene with characters just talking. They want to get to the action very quick. But I'm, I'm that's why I'm really glad that he went back and did a director's cut of this film. Like as much as I did really enjoy the theatrical cut, this one, as I stated before, is just far superior. Like it's not to say it doesn't have its own problems as well, but they're very minor compared to the ones in the previous cut because you know he you know has time to let things breathe a little bit whether it be the action set pieces or the character development because you know a lot of the sort of the things that work is you know the characters and what they go through in this film and their personal character arcs and you know and also where the film goes in the third act like you get more invested because because of that extra time with the characters makes you more invested of what's happening to him in the last half of the film. Yeah, no, I agree. I mean, I personally think that um, they do a much better job of showing the confliction for Dolph Lundgren's character, Gunner, because when he first comes back and he's like, oh, they got work in Velena, that's like literally his first line of dialogue in that scene in the original. But in this one, he has like a full-on conversation asking like how Barney is and like they they kind of have a mini catch-up where Stallone isn't actually that bothered to see him it's like I don't mind if you're coming to like talk to me and maybe you need support but then the second he's like don't replace me or oh if they got work in Valena then it sort of plays out how it did but you see how upset Dolph is in this one and how like he wants to he wants to still be the guy that they relied on and you can see how upset he is. And there, you get a little bit of that in the original, but in this one, it's like he's, he is so hurt by the fact that Stallone says that you can't trust him anymore. And he, it then sort of leads into, well, he then sort of becomes a bad guy in inverted commas, but you actually see him stow away on their plane, which makes so much more sense than he's just magically on the island. And I just love the fact that you get to see a, a much clearer picture of why he would do that. Because I did feel like in the original, it was just sort of like, oh, he's a 
an asshole, like whether he's high or not. Whereas in this one, it's like, no, it's kind of shown a lot more that it is the drugs that sort of drove him to it. And now that he's trying to like improve himself, uh, everybody just sort of turned their back on him, understandable or not. And his response to that was, you know, unsurprisingly, as a, a man of action, in inverted commas, was to pick up a gun and say, well, I'm going to go work for the other guys then and make you feel as hurt as I am. Yeah, I agree. And it's that's one of the things I love most about his performance in this cut, because it the added stuff with him like adds a lot more empathy to the character. Like we can understand like why he's doing what he's doing. Like why does he betray his team? Like, yeah, we just think, oh, he's just an asshole. Like they just cut him off and like in the theatrical cut and he's just gonna go work for the bad guys now. But you can at least get the reasoning why he's doing it. And you actually do feel sorry for him. Uh and also like when he has his bit of redemption, like you feel that as well, because you know he's actually genuinely sorry about what he's what he has done. And also like Dolph in particular, and I think one of the things I what really struck me about the film, like in both cuts, is like he really gives a fully committed performance uh as Gunner. And I I reckon he's definitely gives one of the more underrated performances in the film because again he has a lot more to work with with his character, especially since his character is hindered by addiction. And I think he does a really believable job at playing someone who is struggling with that. And he he's just great in every scene. And, you know, he also has some great lines in it as well. And yeah, he's just a joy to, to see him, you know, given a really good part to play. But also as a fan, having getting the chance to see him on the big screen after so long just since his last go around in cinemas, it's kind of a joy because, you know, we get to see him not only make a comeback and kick ass, but also get a really interesting, compelling character to play as well. Yeah. No, I mean, I think Mickey Rourke and Dolph Lundgren both get sort of to sneak in the best acted scenes in the film. I mean, Mickey Rourke has the more obvious one, which is where he breaks down about, uh, you know, it's, it's probably one of the best scenes in the film where he breaks down about the jumper. And I and I always, well, not, not so much now, because I, you know, I know it's coming, but I remember being in the cinema that, felt like it came out of left field because it's like you're here to see an action film it's been light-hearted it's been quippy uh nothing has really happened yet in inverted commas to be like oh wow this is serious and then all of a sudden here he is breaking down into tears about someone's life he could have saved that he didn't and that was when he realized he's you know am i the bad guy yeah i kind of am and i love the fact that that's what sort of triggers stallone into I can save this person and I can, and I, I, you know, I've got to at least try because if I don't, I'm going to end up like tool over there, just constantly living with the demons of the past and filled with regret. And then that leads into the Dolph Lundgren death in inverted commas scene. And the fact that you get that so far after where it's like, it's the, it's the opposite. It's like tool lived a life of death and violence and just ended up going full like i don't care about anybody but gunner is you know he does care that's why to cope with it he turned to drugs and it's uh now sent him so far over the deep end that he nearly killed one of his best friends you know with yang and he gets shot and 
the only the only thing I don't like in this version is Stallone changes the dialogue that is used when him and Gunnar are talking, and I don't mind the additions of like the Viking funeral stuff, but. There's a particular line in the theatrical cut where he's like, am I dying? And Stallone says, well, the bullet's a few centimeters away from your heart or something. And Dolph does, in my opinion, the the best part is like he sort of winces and like a, a tear falls down his eye. And he's like, I'll take that as a yes. And, I, and that always got to me because it's like, it's not, a, oh, you know, I'm dying. So here's my last moments. It's like, oh, shit, that actually means this is final. And you can see it on his face. And he takes that out of this version. And I don't know why, because I'm like, that really worked in the original, you know? Oh, yeah. Like, I, 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 you know, it's been so long since I've seen the theatrical cut, because I, every time I go back to watch this film, I always watch the, the director's cut. So that's because it's always my go-to of between both of them. And I may have to rewatch the theatrical cut, because I always, there are a lot of little moments that are in the theatrical cut that aren't in this version. Uh, that I do miss, but that's one little moment that I completely forgot about, and that actually would have, you know, again changed the whole scene if uh, if it was still in the director's cut. And it's kind of weird, like that's the funny thing about Sly's director's cuts because he adds so much stuff, but yet he takes out stuff as well. And in Tool's monologue scene, which I think is a great scene, and it really is the scene that kind of like sets you know, the Barney character's trajectory for not only this film, but also the rest of the franchise in terms of, like, if he goes down this road of having a black heart, you know, quote-unquote black heart, uh, and being emotionless and not caring about anyone, he's going to end up, like Tool, having regrets not doing more to save people. And when, you know, Tool is doing his monologue in the theatrical cut, like, after when Sly... I mean, Barney leaves, he Tool breaks down. But in the director's cut, when we cut to Tool, he's just there not crying at all. He's just watching Barney walk away. It's kind of interesting seeing little things like that kind of, I guess, the more emotional scenes are kind of cut out of this version, but yet, I guess, kind of keeping in tone with this one, since this is a much more, like, again, based on the opening credits, this is a the tone of it is much more serious compared to the theatrical cut. So I guess in a way, Sly was kind of trying to make this version, I guess, less emotional as well. I, I mean, you even only have to look at the end because like when everything's all said and done and he is at the plane with uh, Giselle Itty's character, who I was giving <laughs> Sandra. Sandra, Sandra, yes. Uh, like in the theatrical cut, he gives her a hug, goodbye. But in the director's cut, he doesn't do that at all. He just says goodbye and just gets on the plane and that's about it. Um, so it's kind of interesting seeing, like, I guess the more emotional parts kind of taken out to kind of, at the same time, make it a kind of keep the kind of cold tone of, of this film. So it's it's kind of weird, like just like I said, like some of the stuff that's been added in, but the stuff that's been taken out as well. Well, yeah, because one of the things that um, I noticed that comes straight after this is in the theatrical cut, they go to the plane, and then the rest of his crew is waiting for him, and some of the dialogue is shifted around, the timing's different, 
uh, especially when Cruz is talking about his weaponry uh, to Randy Couture. And I don't, I pref- again, I prefer the pacing of the other scene, but the reason it's sped up is because they have more dialogue from the rest of the characters that just aren't in the other version. So it's sort of like a trade-off. But the one thing I did like, because it comes back in the next film, is they sing Mumbo Jumbo. And that makes mm. the sequence in Expendables 2, in my opinion, have more of an impact because it just kind of appears out of nowhere in Expendables 2, but everybody acts like we should know what that they what they're doing. And then, oh, that's because there was a scene in Expendables 1 that was very, very similar. And it's like, yeah, seeing that this is something that they do, like it's a tradition, like this is a song that has meaning to them, that makes the scene in Expendables 2 have a lot more meaning, at least for me, you know? Hmm. And I agree with that. That's why I honestly think, like, in terms of this franchise and, like, what is canon, um, I honestly think, like, Sly probably says, probably thinks that the director's cut is the canon version of this franchise and the theatrical cut isn't. Hence, like, when they do the, the Mumbo Jumbo song in number two, like, I when I saw that scene happen in the second film, I just immediately thought, oh, I see what is going on here. Because, like, like, I saw the director's cut, so I knew, like, what the meaning of that uh, song was. But, like, because I... And it made me realise, like, oh, Sly probably prefers this his director's cut of the first film as as catted. Hence why that addition was put in the second film. But I could imagine, like, if he never released a director's cut and just still kept that scene out... Uh, and this ended up putting it in the second film, it would be very confusing. It's like, okay, what what's this weird song that they're singing? But I think, you know, having it put back into this version, it actually, like you say, makes the see how it's used in the second film actually have a lot more meaning. So which, why I honestly think, like, Stallone kind of sees the director's cut as the in canon with the second and third form rather than the theatrical cut. Yeah, yeah, no, I agree with that. The only continuity issue I have with his edits is uh, Sandra's character. Well, Sandra's character. Sandra is the character. But Sandra, when she is being tortured, you get a lot more of that in this version. But you also get a completely different resolution because the general just basically storms the the room with his soldiers and they stop the interrogation scene and then they, they take her out of the room. And I was like, oh, wow, that's completely different. But then they still do the scenes where he's like, you have my daughter, bring her to me now. And I'm going, but you already rescued her. And it's like, I, I'm not sure if I missed something there, but it's like, but you already freed her once. Like, what? I feel like something else needed to be in the middle there to kind of make that make more sense. Mm. Because by do- making that change, you've made the later scenes kind of lose their... Uh, sense to be blunt you know it's like that was my only real complaint with this version of the film but ultimately it still has the same resolution because the expendables have to infiltrate the island and um much like the fight between Dolph Lundgren and Jet Li where the editing is slightly different but they left some in some of the one-liners because I'd be very sad if they uh didn't have Dolph Lundgren say what are you a size three bring it happy feet that that line gives me much joy (laughs) <laughs> the, the the fights at the end here are not that different 
uh, which I was happy about because I don't think they needed to be. I still would have liked some clearer geography for the hand-to-hand sequences. They're they're mostly good, but especially when they get Gary Daniels taking on Jet Li, I almost felt like it was shorter in this version, and I don't know if it is because I, I haven't looked to compare, but it almost seems like they they probably filmed a lot and they just cut it down because they knew that they had to try and fit in so many people. But it's a, it's a shame because you've got uh, Steve Austin fighting Stallone and then you have this moment where Jet Li fights Gary Daniels and then he sort of tag teams between fighting Jet Li and Jason Statham and then you have that beautiful moment where Jet Li and Jason stand next to each other and the second they do, you're kind of going, ah, oh, well, that's the end of Gary Daniels. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah like i think it's kind of interesting to me like you know at this period in action films that do the fast cutting you know shaky can thing like i can understand that with certain films particularly if the star of the film is somebody who is just an actor and you know has never really done that much action and all that because you know a lot of the time they do stuff like that so using the quick cuts and all that to make it look like they're an amazing fighter in that scene yeah but when you have actors in this film who actually can fight and you know like Jet Li and Statham and Daniels who are you know actual legit martial artists or you know Steve Austin who's a wrestler and Randy Couture who is an MAA fighter and you know Stallone of course you know one of the biggest action stars of all time you would you would think like Okay, let's, you know, shoot these scenes. Yeah, we can have a little bit of shaky cam there, but we'll let the scenes, like, linger, or the shots, I should say, uh, linger a little bit longer so you can see these guys going at it. But the fact that they kind of still do the choppy thing is kind of bizarre as well. It's like, we know these guys can fight. Why are you cutting these scenes like this? Like, I still can see what's going on. That's no problem for me, because at least in, like, if there's if there's any sort of edit changes in these sort of action set pieces, but in the basement, I'd say they're probably very minor. At least you could I can watch this scene and still say, oh yeah, that's who who that's who that's that guy. Okay, I know exactly where they are, like where you know the choreography is and all that, and also the geography of which you know the layout of the place they are at, but. It's just weird to me that it's like you didn't necessarily need to do the sort of the choppy approach to the scene because these guys can fight. Show us these guys fighting and let the scenes go longer than they need to be. Yeah. I mean, I'm the same as you. I can still follow it, but I feel like it's not like it's such an important sequence because I feel like that was the fight between Stallone and Stone Cold and they they do kind of give that its own space but at the same time it would have been nice to give gary daniels Jet Li, and jason statham the room to breathe and whilst you know the other guys are mm. taking on the, the the men in the corridor i do i do like the way it's shot don't get me wrong it feels chaotic which i think was by design but i just feel like yeah yeah definitely. Um, like you say it could have been just that little bit clearer or they could have had longer shots that held on the the actual choreography because what's there is good it's just that it's not the easiest to see, I think is the nice way to say it. But again, it's still good. Mm. Um, and I think that, you know, I remember when I first watched it and I remember like when my dad first watched it 
And I think the the best part of that entire sequence is the fact that Stallone doesn't win, and he nearly gets killed mm. by uh, Steve Austin's pain. And I remember my dad was like, "Oh wow, Stallone's finally realized that a fifty, sixty year old man doesn't actually beat a forty year old man." You know. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, exactly. And it, it's kind of, and that was like the fun thing about it is like, you know, Sly, uh, or at least Barney, the character of Barney, I should say, is, you know, he's get, getting a bit long in the tooth. So he's a much older guy and he still reckons that he can take on all these younger guys. And for the most part, he can. But when he goes up against somebody who is probably more powerful than him, then it's great to see that, you know, Stallone actually plays it realistically. Like, if he is going up against someone who's either got the same kind of strength as him, or even more so, like, he can take a pounding from it. And and it's and it's fun to kind of see, like, oh, yeah, like, Slide totally did not win this fight against uh, <laughs> Steve Austin. Well, I, I also like the fact that even though he loses, they don't make a big deal about it, because it's like... I feel like too many people, both in real life and in films, it's like if you lose a fight, that instantly loses your credibility as like a badass. And mm. they come in and mm. they, you know, they're like, what happened to you? And he's like, I got my ass kicked. And it's like, that's it. Like, they're all like, oh, okay, well, come on. We've still got other people to kill. And then, uh, you know, at the end they do, you know, Randy Couture throws his fists into the arena and basically takes revenge for him, which is fine. But I love the fact that they're all kind of professional enough to be like, well, okay, you got your ass kicked. Uh, moving on. You know, they don't make a big deal about it. And I feel like a lot mm. of people would make the mistake of, you know, that would be something that they constantly sort of go, ah, oh, well, you're not that tough. You know, you, you couldn't beat Steve Austin. And it's like, you've seen the size of Steve Austin, guys. Most of the Expendables would struggle. You know, there's a reason that it was Randy Couture that went in for that final fight, you know? <laughs> <laughs> exactly exactly and also it gives us a chance to kind of see everyone everyone's different fighting styles like we you know we get to see Statham, lee and daniels doing martial arts uh we get to see you know like i said before like austin doing wrestling uh couture doing sort of maa fighting so it's interesting that we get to see these characters kind of getting to do their start different styles of fighting on screen but also kind of seeing like, you know, and it also makes the action set pieces or the hand to hand fight sequences much more interesting because it's not everyone doing the exact same fighting style. Like yep. everyone brings something different to these scenes that do make it a lot more fun. Yeah, yeah. Everybody moves in their own way. You can kind of recognize who it is you're looking at by just their individual movements rather than trying to, you know, you couldn't just... uh put masks on their faces and they become interchangeable like you'd still know which one is jet which one is statham and which one is couture and you'd, you'd know which one is stallone and cruz too but it's like those three in particular being the three hand-to-hand -hand specialists in inverted commas you know they lee's the the knife guy jet lee is much more fluid and flowery and then couture is just the the polar opposite he is just brutality and he's, you know, he, he incorporates a lot of wrestling, which I think is also the other reason why they wanted to have, you know, WWE champion versus UFC champion. I'm sure that was something by design as well. But um, it is just great. Like you say, it keeps it varied and, and it's all it's all done in between a lot of gun gunplay. So no matter what 
part of the action you're interested in, it's all there for you. What I find so interesting is obviously Stallone made the film, he directed the film, and he started a film, and he pretty much broke down on the film. <laughs> because uh, we were talking, like, originally when we were going to do this episode about the making of Expendables Inferno, and that is a feature-length documentary in itself. And in it, I remember, and I've got it up on IMDb as well, like, Stallone suffered so many injuries trying to make this film that it does put some scenes in perspective. Like, I remember mm. uh, the first time we saw that sequence where Stallone's trying to run down the pier to catch the plane. And I remember a lot of people were like, you know, he really looks like he's struggling to run, basically, believably. And then you watch that documentary and you find out, well, uh, yeah, that's because he ruptured, you know, his ankle and uh, walking was a challenge, never mind running. And then he had to shoot the running sequence and you're sort of going, oh, my God. Like, suddenly it, it goes from it looks horrible to that's unbelievable. <laughs> oh, yeah. Like, even the scene with um, Steve Austin, that's kind of the famous scene where basically, like, he cracked his head. I think I think it was that was the scene it, where he cracked his head right because I know he his, had it, it was like his, he it was his neck like he, but yeah oh was it yeah that's right sorry I apologize ah uh, yeah he basically almost basically broke his neck in that scene and like and I that's one of the great things I always tell people like definitely watch that documentary because it really is a fly on the wall with this film and it really doesn't hold back from showing like all the shit that happens to Sly throughout this film, because I always remember just, like, some of the things that have... Ha all the injuries that happened to him, or even stuff, like, with his fingers and stuff like that. Like, like I, I think that was, like, really kind of the film, like, this film in particular, that kind of made him sort of start sort of question where he is at that point as an action star. Like, you know, this is... You know, he would think, like, oh, yeah, I'm a big action star, I can still do this stuff. But, you know, like the character in the film, like, he is starting to question his morality and that's why like in the last maybe in the last 12 years uh since making this film like yeah he did still did action films after this but he either kind of tried to do less of it or is kind of moving away from doing the action stuff and i mean the guy's in his mid-70s now so he can't really do full-blown action sequences anymore but i think this was kind of the film that kind of really kind of put the whole thing in perspective for him and yeah. kind of see like what he needs to do now as an action star and it doesn't and i mean the fact that you know he wrote co-wrote stars directs this film and doing all these action set pieces it definitely would have put a lot of strain on him physically and emotionally and mentally so it doesn't surprise me at all like after this film like he would kind of you know let somebody else kind of take over directing duties so he could focus on you know his performance and you know and the writing duties. Yeah, and I mean, you know, it says he sustained 14 injuries making this movie. It doesn't actually list all of them, but they included breaking a tooth, rupturing his ankle, getting a hairline fracture in his neck that required a surgical insertion of a metal plate, which is what we were just uh, talking about. He also had bronchitis and shingles during the shoot, and any one of those things would be enough to stop most people from doing their day-to-day -day life never mind trying to shoot an action film and the funny thing to me has always been that the scene where he almost like breaks his neck is still in the film it's in both cuts mm. with it's the for those listening may not know it's the sequence in which stone cold essentially um 
spears him into the wall and he lands on that wall and you can you know that that gut-wrenching like slam he does onto the jagged rock uh it, it looks so good because it's real he he hit that thing way harder than he was supposed to at the wrong angle it was like the sixth time they'd done it because understandably you know steve austin had been holding back and it and it was one of those situations where stallone was like look we just need to get the shot just just hit me as hard as you can and i can take it and he he did and uh, then it was the case of he went to hospital in an ambulance and it's funny because that's not even like the first time he's done that like he told Dolph Lundgren to punch him punch him in the ribs as hard as he could and it was like you know I suddenly had a broken rib <laughs> and it's like why does he I, I was, just, why does he do that to himself <laughs> I was gonna bring up that same thing because you would think after that whole ordeal with Lundgren on Rocky 4 he wouldn't try to do something like that again but clearly he well Yes, it would have. This would have been like, yeah, twenty five years after the fact, but still, it's like you, you, you should have known better, man. I think that the the truth is, is when you're on the set and you know everybody's waiting for you, and especially in his case because he was directing it, he was you know part producing it, he co-wrote it, he's the the main star, and he's very much aware of how much money they don't have. I think it was a case of you know he just was trying to get it done as fast as possible so that everybody could go home. Cause I remember one of the things that he said was like, so many people are in this film essentially as a favor and, you know, I'm not really paying them what I should. And it's like, in the case of like Statham, who is, you know, next to me probably has the most scenes pretty much the day after we wrap shooting, he's getting on a plane to go and shoot a different film. So I don't have the luxury of, going over because all my actors will leave and it doesn't matter mm. if uh, if i'm basically dragging myself along the floor it's got to be done and it, it you know i feel like he doesn't get enough credit for the for being able to push through because yes i i don't think he should have gotten himself into that state in the first place it's like calm down dude it's just a movie but at the same time it's his movie and it's like it's only going to get made if he pushes through it and I feel like there are actors out there that do get credit for doing that, and for some reason, Stallone isn't one of them, you know? Hmm. Yeah, definitely, definitely, for sure. So, is there a, I think we've kind of uh, chatted about The Expendables and the director's cut and the differences. I mean, one of the biggest differences at the end, since we, we were talking about it, is in the director's cut, they used the Shinedown track that was made specifically for The Expendables that doesn't get any real screen time in the original other than in the credits and I, and I don't know if Stallone put that in purely because you know it was sort of like an apology to the band because their track mm. didn't get used or what but yeah instead of it being an, uh, an orchestral piece like the rest of the film it sort of turns into a music video and I still cannot make up my mind if I like it or not and I, and I say that as someone who actually really likes that song and listened to it to death when it came out uh, at the time, but I really don't know if it fits the scene. I, thought, I was curious to know what you thought about that change. Well, I gotta say, I do love that song. I think out of all the songs that are on my iTunes playlist, that's probably the one I play the most. Like, because <laughs> it's such a great amp up song. Like, it really, like, I remember I used to work out to that song. Like, that would be the first song I would play if I was used to work out. Because that would just really put you in that mindset of like, going, and also it's just a really fun song that 
And because I remember it was used a lot in the trailers. And yeah, I thought, okay, this is a cool song. It's going to be used in the movie. Not meant, not played in the movie at all. And even the other song, the other original song, uh, Sinner's Prayer, which is where the mumbo jumbo part comes from, uh, that was completely cut from the theatrical cut as well. So I was very disappointed that, uh, yeah, Diamondize, the song, wasn't in this version. I mean, in the theatrical cut, because I think it is such a great, fun song. Uh, so I, I would not be surprised if the reason why it is played twice in the movie is because Sly as, it did it as an apology to the band because it is, you know, a great rock and track. Um, I think having it at the end credits is the perfect way to put it because it does send you like after watching everything that has happened in the film it just sends the movie out on a high note because you're just even more amped up as you were before i've kind of had two minds about its placement in the actual big final action set piece um i think if it was an instrumental version of the song i think it would be a lot better because again like even though yeah they slide in this version of the film takes out the original orchestral uh part of the this scene and replaces it with the song i think it was if it was only just the instrumental version of that song i think the scene would play a lot better but i think having the actual like singing of the song in there as well does make the scene a little bit more cheesier uh, and like you say, feel a little bit more like a music video. So that's why I think, like, I have no problem with the song being used in that scene, but I think it just would have been better if the, like, the, if the singing was cut out and it was only just an instrumental track instead. Because I think the instrumental track on its own definitely really kind of amps up that whole scene. Like, it makes it a much more fist pumping, adrenaline thumping kind of action set piece with that rockin' sound to that scene. But again, it's really the singing that kind of lessens the scene because it could easily been taken out and just be an instrumental instead. Yeah, no, I, I agree. I think actually that would have been a much better approach. I mean, that end fight sequence uh, or uh, battle sequence is so, like, a 1980s-esque anyway that it just the music does i think fit it it's just like you say it's the singing that kind of throws it off i mean i i it doesn't matter which version you watch i will never not laugh when at the end of all of this mass amount of explosions gunfire death stallone then says blow the dump and i and i even made a note like is there anything left to blow up like I feel like we've just had 20 explosions one after the other, and now now you're saying, okay, now blow it up. And I'm like, what? what's left? <laughs> and it's such a small area, too, because every time I watch this scene, I always forget it really, that whole section where this whole big action set piece is taking place, it's not that big. It's just only the compound of the palace. And it's like, <laughs> I mean, you've blown, you guys have blown up and destroyed everything. What else is left to blow up in this scene? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, and it, it always makes me smile as well because you have all of this bombastic energy and action. And then it, it ends with a sort of a showdown between Stallone and Monroe, Eric Roberts's character. 
and uh i always find it funny how they do you know these massive explosions and then suddenly it's like right back with the tension because you know he shoots stallone is he gonna kill sandra how is he gonna get out of this and then we get to see stallone do his uh, clint eastwood impression and you know pull the pistol out and fill them full of bullets and then the uh Dolph Lundgren's knife comes back from Jason Statham and again it doesn't matter which version you watch it's still a CGI knife and I gotta give massive props (laughs) props to Eric Roberts because he sells that CGI knife like he he really goes a hundred percent into making you think that there is a knife in him even if it's blatantly obvious that there isn't his acting almost sells it Oh yeah, like as much as I do love this film, the CGI in this film is very shoddy. And I think that knife in particular when it does go through Eric Roberts is even more <laughs> even more apparent. Or even like in the scene where uh you know Barney rescues Sandra from the two guys. Oh yeah. Like I yeah. always find it funny, like some of the like the little inconsistencies with this film. Uh basically at one point, literally Barney basically I don't know if he, because it's such a quick cut, I don't know whether he, like, legit decapitates a guy with the knife or, like, just really just cuts his throat really big. And then when you see the bodies and you see the guy that he either almost decapitated on the ground, it's like his head is still on his body. Like, it's <laughs> it's kind of, like, little things like that just make me laugh. But also, we got to remember, there's a scene where in the big final action set piece, and I always wince whenever this scene happens, is the scene basically where Steve Austin almost has his own brush with death is like a legit, like, explosion happens right next to him. And apparently, because he has, like, a suitcase yeah, yeah, that he's holding. And from what I hear, if he didn't have that suitcase there, he could either have died or lost his leg. Because that suitcase, like, protected him from the blast as he's running through that scene. Yep, yep. I I read that earlier, and um, it's 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 very weird when you read things like that, and you just think that could have been very dangerous. And it is kind of depressing because other other you know this isn't the the Expendables, but in the next film, I'm pretty sure it's the next film. Unfortunately, you know some of the stunt people did die uh due to some stunts that went wrong and you know the fact that you hear all these stories of how the first you know so many people kind of got injured or nearly had serious injuries on the first expendables and you're sort of going i do love my action film guys but there's there's no need to to like go so hard it's like there are ways to do this now where you're not gonna you know risk people's lives every five minutes which it kind of feels like the the Expendables were sort of, uh, I, I don't know, man, because they, they, they've got really good people working on it. And I don't know if it was a case of people in suits just weren't listening or if it was just, you know, where where they were shooting or what. But yeah, it, I do find it weird how many dangerous stories come out of the Expendables. And yet, like, for example, the stunt coordinator on this film was Chad Stahelski. And considering he's the head of 8711, mm the director of the John Wick films and has been doing this for decades. I fail to believe that he, this is the one film where he just decided to only do a half job. It's like, there's, there's, there's more to this story. Like, uh, you know, I, I, I don't think it's the fault of the people that were in charge of that stuff. It's, you know, I, 
I don't know what happened, but yeah, all three Expendables films seem to have stories of near misses or, like I said, unfortunately, things that didn't miss. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely a lot of stuff you can look into. Like, definitely there would have to have been some kind of mismanagement somewhere, especially with what happened on the second film with the actual deaths. Um, I guess with some things like this, I honestly think, like, in this case, particularly with uh, Steve Austin, I feel like this was just just an accident at the end of the day. Like, like you just never really know when these things happen. You can have all these action set pieces fought out down to the T, but some, but in the end, they an accident can still happen. I mean, even in the third film, like Stafford almost died in that scene where the truck goes into the water and he almost drowned. Like, well, yeah, because I think the, 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 the truck wasn't supposed to go into the water. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like it, it, like you said, like definitely accidents are definitely going to happen on a lot of films like this. Whether the some of these things are just, just as as I said, accidents or it's just mismanagement somewhere, and it's kind of interesting to kind of look into it and just find out what was just an just truly an accident or somebody kind of fucked up somewhere and basically didn't do their job properly and got someone either hurt or almost killed or in in a horrible case like uh killed like in the second film so as we as we were talking about it i thought i should uh, just look it up to make sure that i've got my facts straight and it's actually kind of given what what's sparked this conversation it's kind of really sad so the 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 stuntman was kun lu he was only 25 and he died on the set of expendables 2 but he actually died because he was near an explosion which kind of what we were just talking about and it's so mm. and apparently his parents were are i don't know because there's no updates sued the film's producers, claiming that movie executives failed to take proper safety precautions on the set, which I can't say I'd be surprised because, you know, there's another film series out there, and uh, I don't want to get too much off topic, but if you know anything about the Resident Evil film series, there's a stunt woman out there mm. that uh, pretty much said similar things, that uh, producers don't really care about the safety of the stunt people so long as they do the stunt and if they get hurt, well, that's their fault. They should have taken proper precautions. And it's like, yeah, that's what I told you. And then it, it, it's a, it's one of those situations where I feel like it, there's no way to win because if you bring it up and say and and make your case known, it's like, well, that's what you're there for. You're a stunt person. You take risks. Well, yes, but you're supposed to make it as safe as possible, and you're not. And then if you're going to be like a, a quote-unquote team player which i'm sure is the phrase that will get used and then it goes wrong you're the one that now only has one arm or maybe you die and it never seems to come back on the people that didn't make it safe in the first place and it's like how do you uh, i don't know how do you win is the wrong phrase but how how exactly do you deal with that you know this is this is your job and if people don't listen to you when you say that this is not something that we should be doing and then it you know, you do it, and then somehow it's still your fault because you did it, even though you said that no one should. I, I, I find that really difficult to, to deal with, but unfortunately, do not struggle to believe it, you know? Yeah. Yeah, definitely, for sure. And uh, 
that's the thing. It's it just yeah, it does happen. Not it happens on quite a number of action franchises, and the Expendables is franchise is just one of those. Like again, this is like a you know Millennium Films. So <laughs> like I, I I would imagine Millennium Films as a company doesn't have the best reputation when it comes to a lot of things. So like it wouldn't doesn't surprise me at all. Like stuff like this would happen under their watch. Uh, even though there are a lot of films that they've produced that I do enjoy or love. So, but even then though, like, I think with the, this film, like it, it, even knowing all this stuff, it still doesn't ruin my enjoyment of the film. Like, I think at the end of the day, like the film itself is still like a really fun action ride. Like, I think a lot of people, when they kind of go into this thinking like, oh, well, given all the talent that's going to be in it. It's going to be the greatest action film ever. But I honestly think like all these films in the franchise are not striving out to be the greatest action film of all time, despite having so many great action stars. You know, I think they're just, you know, just set out to just really entertain and just kind of, you know, be love these big fun love letters to not only the action genre, but also the actors themselves. Like, I honestly think like the thing is with this film, like, or any of the films in the franchise is they didn't need to create ca- character names for any of these characters. They could have only just been called Stallone or Schwarzenegger and Willis. <laughs> and that could have been fine because basically like they are all essentially playing themselves to a degree. And it, again, it is a celebration of all these guys with the constant, you know, uh, throwbacks to their previous work, whether it be scenes or dialogue. and you know, and also you get that sense of fun from them as well. Like everyone's having a good time making these, you know, fun throwback action films. And especially when you have a the scene with um, Stallone, Willis, and Schwarzenegger sharing the screen for the first time. Like, like yeah, it's only a short little scene, but like the child inside who grew up watching all these guys' films just is like shrieking at, at for joy because you know. You never thought you're going to live to see a scene like this ever. And then, of course, you know, they took it even further with the second film, with all three of them actually not only sharing the same frame, but also shooting down bad guys as well. Yeah. And uh, for me, it, it was that moment of how do you top having Bruce Willis, Stallone and Schwarzenegger in a scene together? Well, you make the person that comes in to to sort of help him out be Chuck Norris, and it's like that's a casting that you just you'd never have got when these guys were in their prime because they'd have bankrupted whatever studio tried to finance it. Oh yeah, definitely. And I think also at the time, I think it was great that they waited as long as they did to make this film like their first, you know, the big team up because I feel like. I mean, yeah, they're not at the peak as what they were back in the 80s and 90s in terms of, like, their physiques and what they could do with the action. But I feel like at the same time, if they tried to, I feel like all their egos would have gotten into the in the way um, <laughs> from for letting that happen. But now sort of seeing them at to this point, a lot more older, a lot more wiser, and having no, none of that sort of like that rivalry between any of them anymore and them just being friends, it actually may it 
it's like they just kind of knew it was the time for them just to work together on something. Like, yeah, it would be great to have seen them, like I said, when they were at their peak. But I think having them wait this long kind of adds something to it. And also, you know, it kind of changes the dynamic of their characters in the film, but also just them as people as well. Yeah. Yeah. No, 100%. I don't know. It's one of those things where it's it's very easy to sit here and say, uh, I wish, or, uh, you know, it, it, if only they'd done something different. But in reality, there's two different cuts of The Expendables. One, because like I said, two and three will be different things. And um, I don't think either version is bad, no matter which version that you guys might have seen. The director's cut is my preference, and I think it's Beads as well. Mm. But it's a good film, no matter how you slice it. Yes, it, it you know it could have been better, and yes, everybody's probably got that wish list moment that they wish they had done something different. But at the same time, you can't please everyone, and they did what they could do with the resources that they had. And like you say, I don't think they're going to be remembered as the best action films ever. But the novelty of seeing so many stars across you know, so many different types of action film and even a couple of people who maybe weren't really known for it or had been forgotten for it uh, is worth the price of entry. The fact that, that it is still a good action film is great. I mean, I, I remember so many people quoted this film for so long and like the, the sequences in particular where they get in the plane and it looks like they're trying to run away and then they swing back around and essentially blow everybody up that was just trying to shoot at them. Everyone I knew loved that scene, like the, the fry and die was just quoted so many times and you can't replicate or get across to people that weren't watching it at the time who didn't grow up with these uh, actors and didn't you know, follow them so vividly. You can't try and say to someone now, 12 years later, oh yeah, this is a really big film because you don't have that cultural moment of these guys are together for the first time because you try and show someone younger or maybe someone that isn't that interested in these types of films. And it's like, okay, I see a bunch of old people shooting guns at each other and uh, throwing knives. Uh, I'm not really sure what the big deal is. And it's like, if you don't have that point of reference to be like, this is Stallone, this is Statham, this is Lee, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, uh, it kind of loses its meaning. And I think that's perfectly fine. Like, this was made for action fans and... You don't need to be like, oh, you know, it, it's only for a certain type of person. It made a hundred million dollars when it was made for like nothing. It had an impact. It might not have the impact of, say, Iron Man, you know, <laughs> starting a whole nother franchise of films that we're still dealing with now. But it did what it needed to do, which is remind everybody these guys have still got it. And it gave them another couple films out of it, which... Once Upon a Time is all that you could ask from for a film. Hmm. Yeah, exactly. And I think it it came out at exactly the right time when it needed to be because, again, it was kind of at that tail end of, you know, of the old school action films and also the kind of the precursor to the kind of the more newer stuff that we're seeing right now or even just the big superhero boom. And I always love the fact that you know, Mickey Rourke in particular shot his scenes <laughs> for this film basically when he had two days off during Iron Man 2. So if you watch the film, he's literally has the exact same 
look as his character <laughs> yeah. of Whiplash in Iron Man 2. Um, so, you know, it's kind of just that, and, you know, it, this film came out at the right time when it needed to be, like when, even though, yes, Stallone, Willis, and Schwarzenegger were kind of at the tail end of their careers, but they still had it. Uh, so this film and the next two films were able to kind of capitalize on that, then finish up at the right time and, you know, when they needed to be. And it'll be kind of interesting when Expendables 4 comes out next year because, again, we're by the time that one comes out, it would have been nine years since the third film. It'll be interesting to see where the fourth one goes because, I mean, we'll... Like you said before, like I think today's younger audiences are probably not going to find the appeal of the Expendable films like we do. Because you and I both grew up with these guys. We watched and love all those films. So the the so watching these films definitely adds that kind of resonance for us. I mean, resonated to us. So it'll be interesting to see where how the fourth one is going to do. Like. Will audiences still turn up or will only a specific type of audience show up like us? Because I know I'll be there opening day when the fourth film uh, is released. So I'm kind of curious to see where the franchise goes from here. But um, but in terms of like the first film, like I, I, I do love this film. Like I think it is a perfect start to this franchise. And I like that all three films are kind of different in their own way. And this one in particular, I think go for that kind of 80s feel while having that sort of at the time sort of that grittiness that a lot of action films were going for at the time so like it it, to me it was just like the this film just came out at the perfect time like it was something that you know we as action fans like old school action fans can enjoy before kind of where the future of the genre would go from here kind of getting a chance to see these guys get together i guess basically for one last time because you know we never thought we would ever see any of these guys come together for a film but not only did they do that for this film but they did it two more times after this um it's definitely not a perfect film like you say like even though i prefer the director's cut overall uh but it does still have its problems but that's like i always say like the third one i mean this this one is probably my third favorite of the three films but i think with the next two i feel like they do improve on a lot of things in a lot of ways that that i found faulty with this one but at the end of the day it's still a a fun action film and at the end of the day you know sometimes we need that something is a a fun old school action film and getting the chance to see all these action stars together definitely adds that novelty but also that this fun flavor to it as well and what makes it memorable as a film as a whole yeah no i i agree with you i mean the only thing i I, that i feel differently on and i and maybe i think i'm in the minority on this one but for me uh expendables either cut but definitely the director's cut is number two in my expendables ranking for me it's two one three you know that's just a personal thing i mean i i I don't know if I'll ever do an episode on Expendables 3 because I don't want two hours of me just complaining about what I don't like about it. You know, it's like... Um, see, see, this is why you should bring me on that episode because I, the more times I see number three, the more I am slowly convinced it's the best of the three films. 
Oh. And I could go oh. into many reasons why that is. <laughs> okay, that could be that could be interesting. I'll give you that. Anyway, uh, that's probably going to be it for this conversation about the first one. Uh, so I hope you guys have enjoyed it. Thanks for coming on, Bede. It's been a lot of fun. I hope you enjoyed it. Yeah, I had an absolute blast because I do have a love for this franchise. I don't know why I love these three films. Like, I just do. And I'm probably, like, <laughs> like one of the biggest fans of this franchise. So finally getting onto a podcast and actually talking about you know, the reasons why, in particular, why I love the first film as I do was definitely a thrill. And I have to thank you, Scott, for bringing me on to kind of talk about this movie with someone. Hey, I mean, to be fair, there wasn't any shortage of people, I think, for The Expendables. I think it's one of those films where if you're a fan of any of the main Expendables, then you're probably going to like this film. But yeah, I mean, when we were talking about it originally... It was a it was a nice change of pace. I kind of like uh, varying the voices that come on, and whether it's for Expendables three or whether it's for something else, I'm sure this won't be the last time that you come on to chat action films. Like you were saying at the beginning, you know, you have a uh, several different podcasts that you do with the Super Network. Obviously, I joined you for one of them where we did strip tease for the After Dark show, but um. I feel like uh, if you if you're an action person, then you know you now have an outlet to come on and be like, "I want to talk about this action film." <laughs> oh, definitely for sure. But I have to say though, I kind of, I mean, I would love if you ever do do an episode on number three. I definitely need to be on that because, like I said, I think it'll be an interesting counterpoint to someone who you know because I know number three is not as well liked as the first two but as somebody who does actually love that film unabashedly i could talk about the reasons why i do but also i'd love to come if you ever do the second film i'd love to come on and even just chat about that and why i feel like like as much as i love the first film the second film kind of is the the film that i imagined <laughs> that what the first one should have been in a way like or at least what i imagined that like where i first heard of the expendables like the film in my head was what the second film was if that makes any sense yeah yeah no i i understand completely i think i agree with you i mean i i still have some issues with the second film but it's ironically it's more in the editing um and mm. I, and I don't and I, like I said, if I ever do a second episode, I'll go more into that. And as for the the third one, I don't hate it. Um, like I said to you, uh, I ended up rewatching all three Expendables films because I suddenly had a lot of time, and I've never hated in inverted commas the third one. I just have so many negative issues with it that it kind of it, compared to number two and number one. I don't find myself sat there thinking, oh, I really am in the mood to rewatch Expendables 3. It has its its highlights, of which Banderas and Snipes are pretty much the main two. But the first one has Jet Li. The first one has Steve Austin. And, mm. you know, the fact that each film kind of has actors in it that don't really have big roles or any role in the other ones kind of gives each film a reason to watch them. But my biggest, uh, uh, my biggest annoyance, and again, I, I don't want to like start a, a tangent, is you even said like Banderas is one of the best highlights of the third film. 
and I agree, and I really like Snipes, um, I'd like them even more if they weren't sidelined for half the fucking film. Because uh, it's like, I came mm. here to see them do shit, not sit in the background and wait for their moment. I guess in a way, like, uh, <laughs> the kind of, like, uh, sort of thing about that. I, I also, because, like, I was following the behind-the-scenes stuff of that film as well. I guess it's sort of, like, a lot of actors either couldn't be fully commit to that film as uh, as they could because of, um, you know, uh, scheduling conflicts or they were working on other stuff at the time. I know Terry Crews was also doing, like, Brooklyn Nine-Nine at the same time, so he had to, so he had to opt. Or a smaller role in that one so terry cruz is the only one that i know was like i kind of have had enough of expendables i've got brooklyn 99 i want to do comedy now instead of action so i'll come back but yeah uh, i i knew going in he was having a reduced role but i wasn't expecting no nah, no we're not talking about expendables 3 <laughs> we'll, we'll have to save that for another time because i have an interesting thing about this film that like, there's a lot of interesting subtext to it. And when I bring this up, people, like, really, Expendables 3, I'm like, let me explain, and then it might turn you around on the film. But I might save that for another time. And with that, I shall hand you back over to the me of the future to tell you what's coming next and anything else that needs saying. All right, there you go. You've done it. You've reached the end of that two-hour-long talk about film. As I said at the very beginning, we do spend quite a bit of time discussing the actors who were and weren't involved. I know some people might have been a little bit surprised that I was uh, a bit mean, but I think everybody that knows me knows that that uh, it wasn't meant seriously. I hope that people recognize that that was for comical effect. And it was kind of, you know, how I felt at the time many, many years ago. But yeah. It's one of those things where, when I listened to it back, I was kind of like, well, I hope by now people know me well enough to, to know when I'm trying to do something for comedy and when it's uh, for real. If you ever need to know when I'm actually disliking something, feel free to go back and listen to the episodes on Mortal Kombat. <laughs> so, I hear you lovely, enthusiastic action fans ask, this was a great episode, Scott, but what are you gonna do next? Well... I have a couple of episodes to pick from, and I don't usually do this. I usually put them out as I record them. Mostly so we don't end up in the same situation that we were in not that long ago, where I had too many damn episodes that were stuck in a backlog. But that wasn't because I'd randomly picked them, that was because of other stuff that we've previously said about. However, because of the fact that I really, really, really like uh, one of the conversations that I had and I kind of want to break it up so that it's, you know, it's always varied. Uh, I have decided to sort of have this particular episode skip uh, a little bit. It's only, it's only by a week or two, so it's not the end of the world. But the next episode is going to be on the 2022 Indian action film Vikram. And our guest for that week will be Mike Scott. So I hope you guys are excited for the return of Mike and the return of me talking about Indian film. I really wanted to not just keep bringing Matt back to talk about Indian film. There are many more Indian films on the way. I have uh, pretty much already planned out the next two that are coming after Vikram. And there's uh, going to be some, hopefully, some more conversation with episodes coming very, very soon from people that I'm personally excited about. 
So hopefully lots of good things are coming that you guys are going to really enjoy. And I look forward to getting them to you relatively quickly. As I've said previously, the conversation with episodes are very much dependent on other people's schedules, but all the other stuff is pretty much just up to me to keep on top of, so that stuff shouldn't be an issue. Either way, guys, be excited, get hyped, let me know if you're excited to hear me and Mike talk about Vikram, and uh, after that, I'm pretty certain that it's going to be the return of Andy Gorham to talk about the Scott Adkins masterpiece that is the first accident, ma'am. That's enough talking about the future. My name is Scott Wiley. This is the Action Act Podcast. I hope you are keeping well, my friends, and I will see you in the next one. On the Action Act.